Morning. Morning. Nate and his stool. Okay, I I would never be able to sit down for five seconds. Anyway, okay, Uh, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. Welcome those watching online. Uh, We're still in our series uh, in 1st and 2nd Peter. We're actually in 1st Peter right now. We're in our series called Prepared. Uh, And there's so much stuff in here to cover. I'm so excited to get through both of these books. Uh, But I'm going to give you a brief recap because there's just so much... Uh, to catch you up on so I make sure you can follow along and I'll try to do as quick as possible but Peter wrote these books uh, or these letters actually to believing Jews who had moved out of Jerusalem now they'd moved out of Jerusalem because the Jews were persecuting them the Orthodox Jews for following Christ they were upset about it so uh, they, they were starting to experience persecution so they moved out and thought if they went to the Gentile areas of Asia Minor which is modern day Turkey that things would be better but after they left Jerusalem and they moved into these uh, to Asia Minor, they ran into some more problems because the Romans started persecuting him. And the reason the Romans were persecuting him is because they had this insane ruler named Nero. And when I say insane, I mean read about him. He's legit. I mean nuts. He was insane. Uh, he was a certifiable maniac. The man just... People's lives meant nothing to him, especially Christians. He would take Christians and put them on stakes and light them on fire and use them as garden torches. Yeah, he was demented. So one day he decides he wants to set Rome on fire. So he sets Rome on fire and it burns to the ground in six days. Uh, And when the people got mad about it, he just blamed the Christians. And no one was going to, you know, accuse him after he blamed the Christians because they were afraid of him. So now they were being persecuted by the Romans for something they absolutely didn't do. So they were really experiencing more persecution probably than they had in Jerusalem. So Peter wrote this letter to them to teach them how to be faithful despite all that persecution and suffering. Now today we'll discuss what Christ-like, a Christ-like perspective uh, on suffering and what it should look like. Um, have you ever wondered, and I've wondered this before, and I know it's probably come into all your minds at one time or another, but have you ever wondered why some believers seem to suffer more than others? You ever asked that question? And there's really... It's tough to answer that. I mean, is it because they've done something wrong? Is it because they deserve it? You know, is it uh, because they don't know the Bible well enough to avoid suffering? I'm not saying any of those are true. Uh, but, you know, those questions go through our mind. Because uh, there, there have been and always will be uh, uh, just people who go through these sufferings and they've always had the questions about it. So today Peter's going to deal with that topic and kind of explain that. Uh, but I think when you hear what Peter has to say, it'll clear up some of that confusion. So today, Peter's going to remind his readers that suffering for your faith is nothing new, and it's nothing rare, and it's nothing strange. Uh, And today, Peter's going to say it's actually no surprise at all when you're persecuted for your faith. So I titled the message today, No Surprise, uh, and we'll jump in. That's as quick as I can do it. Okay, now, 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you uh, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So he's saying, don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised when these persecutions befall you. So in verse 12, he basically is telling his readers, why are you shocked about this? Why are you shocked that you're being surprised, that you're being persecuted for your faith? And then he said, you even act like something strange is happening to you. See, believers should never think it's strange that the world wants to persecute us and that persecutions accompany faith. Because if you believe that that's strange, evidently you're not reading your Bible very much. Because all over the scripture from the Old Testament to the New, the world has always persecuted those who followed God. It has always happened. Jesus warned his disciples about this before his crucifixion. If you look at John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember that the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his, than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So Jesus even warned that this was going to happen. And here's how it goes. Basically, the world will love you if you give them what you give Jesus. If you love them and obey them and make them a priority, they will love you. Right? But here's the thing. You have to ask yourself, what's more important to you? Having the love of the world or having the love of Jesus? What's more important to you? Because the world only offers a temporary and conditional love. They love you as long as you're doing what they want you to do. You ever been in a friendship or a relationship where everything was great as long as everything went their way? Anybody married here? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I better shut my mouth because she might be listening online. Anyway, if she comes to the next service, we'll just delete that. But you ever been in that relationship where, I mean, seriously, as long as they get their way, everything's perfect. Right? That's the way the world is. But see, Jesus offers eternal and unconditional love. He knows that we're losers. I hate to say that, but he knows that we're always going to mess up and loves us anyway. He makes a promise to us and he keeps it. He promised eternal life and he's going to deliver. And so personally to me, I don't understand, you know, the conflict here. I'm willing to have the world hate me if I can have the love of Christ. I'm just willing to take that, you know. So that's something we have to remember. And Peter was trying to get him to remember that. And there's something important I think we need to realize about surprises. Because Peter said, why are you acting surprised? Why does this shock you? But there's something that came to my mind about surprises that I don't think most people realize or consider. Surprises are based on expectations that are assumed, uninformed, or inaccurate. That's why surprises exist. Okay? They're based on, uh, you know, expectations that are assumed that are uninformed or inaccurate. And, for example, I had a girl that played on my softball team who was five feet tall-ish. She says, like, five feet and a half, because that happens means a lot when you're five foot tall. And she's like 100 pounds or so. Um, I would never try to guess that in front of her, but she's like 100 pounds or so. So she's tiny. And so whenever she steps into the batter's box, they always say, the other coaches always come out mercilessly and go, everybody move in, everybody move in. They do that to her every time she gets up. She used to get mad about it. Now she actually embraces it, right? Because they all move in, and this girl has home run power in that little five-foot frame. And she jacks it over their head. I think five or six home runs this year. And I love the look on their faces. This look of utter surprise on their faces. And the surprise that they are receiving is just because they had assumed she couldn't hit. They were uninformed about her stats. And they had inaccurate uh, beliefs about her ability to hit. And she hits it over their head almost every time. So then after we play them for a while, when they move back, I have her bunt, just because I think it's funny. But anyway, um, that's one of those things. Surprises are based on that, and I think it's really important that we remember that. See, the Bible gives all the information, gives all believers all the information we need to keep from being surprised. The Bible gives us everything we need to know, okay? But if you don't read it, you will be surprised, and usually you will have a lot of negative surprises, right? Because... You don't know how to avoid those things that the Bible clearly tells you how to avoid. And I think this is what Peter was trying to say. He's like, listen, if it's a surprise to you that the world's going to hate you, evidently you're not reading. It should not shock you. 
They persecuted everybody from the prophets to Jesus himself. He's saying, why is this such a shock to you? You know, and I think if we learn to regularly read the word and regularly pray, we'll be prepared for anything the enemy has to throw at us. He can't shock us. You know, in the economy we live in and the political climate we live in, and I don't get involved in all that stuff because personally it bores me to death, but in the climate we live in politically and, and socially, the climate we live in, it's, it's kind of tough because, I mean, I actually have to say they're pulling stuff that is a surprise to me. But the solution is not a surprise to me. See, they pull out new stuff every day that just blows my mind that the world can get that evil. Has anybody ever been sitting going, how much worse can it get? Anybody else say that? The stuff they report on, the stuff they want you to accept. But I keep thinking to myself, I didn't see that one coming, but the solution's the same. I'm just going to trust Jesus because it didn't surprise him. He is never, ever surprised. Listen, really, really important that you understand that the Bible will help you manipulate the life without having to deal with that. Now, I love what Peter said. He called these trials a fiery ordeal. Okay, now remember, Jesus and a lot of his disciples, when they taught, they tried to relate to the people they were speaking to. Okay, and when he called these these trials and, and these surprises a fiery ordeal, he was referring to the process of refining different kinds of metals because that was very popular at that time. Right now, a metallurgist, someone who worked with metal, would place raw metals like gold or silver into a fiery furnace to melt it down. Okay, now see if you can follow me on this. You'll see where it's going. All right, and when metal melts down into a molten state, the imperfections in that metal come to the top. Right? So then it's called dross, and they take these things, and they scrape all that off, and they keep doing that until there's hardly anything coming up, right? And then when, when everything stops coming up, then they know they've finished the process, right? And what this does is it's a purification process, right? It, when they're done, the metal will come out in its purest and most valuable form, and then they'll reshape it. And then people love it because it's been completely purified and reformed. See, the metallurgist, when he sees a big lump of unperfected metal, most people look at that and go, junk. But he goes, I know inside that metal somewhere is a treasure. If someone will take the time to put it in the fire and heat it up in intense heat and let all the imperfections rise to the top, when all that process is over, that is going to be a treasure for somebody. You see where I'm going with this? That's how the person who works with metal sees that. Now, likewise, believers... When we suffer for our faith, we shouldn't be surprised. It's a part of the process that God has set up for us to learn to be closer to him. How many people have ever been in a serious trial? Raise your hands if you've been in a serious trial. The rest of you are blessed, I guess. When you're in a serious trial, there's two things you can do. You can whine and pout about it and ask God why and get mad and get mad at your pastor, mad at church, mad at the Bible. You can do that. It won't do you any good, but you can do that. Or you can seek what God is trying to teach you in that trial and realize that he is putting you in that fiery ordeal because he wants to begin the purification process to make you the treasure he knows you are. He knows that in you somewhere is a strong believer. He knows that in you somewhere is someone who can make an impact on this world. But he's got to get the junk out of you first. So when you get into that fire, all the imperfections start to come to the top and he takes them away. When you're in that difficult situation, the best thing to pray is, God, leave me in this fiery ordeal until every imperfection you want out of me is gone. So when I come out of here, I'm a treasure to you. That I'm of use to you. Those fiery ordeals, I'm telling you, I've been there so many times and I've prayed. I, when I first got in those ordeals, I'm not going to lie, I would say, 
Get me out of this. I mean, how many people have prayed that before? Be honest. Have you ever prayed, I hate this. Get me out of this. I don't want to be pure. You know what I mean? Leave me nasty and happy. I mean, that, that's the way I started off. But the deeper I got into that, I started thinking to myself, you know what? If I get pulled out of this, he wants that junk out of me. I'm going to end up back here again. Because he's not going to quit. He's not going to change his process. He's going to keep that process going until he gets what he wants out of me and makes me the treasure he wants me to be. Right? And so I pray, God, leave me here until you've learned, until you've taught me everything you want me to learn. I want to continue suffering until this is over because I don't want to do it again. I want this to be over when I come out of this fire. That's, that's how you pray. Because he's not doing it to be mean. He's putting you those fiery ordeals because like the metallurgist, he sees us as more viable than we can even imagine. And he wants to bring that out in us. And here's the thing. The more we trust him when we're in those struggles, the more we reach out for his hand when we're in those struggles, the more we withstand him, trusting him through him, the more that finished product looks like Jesus. The more it looks like Jesus. And that is his goal, to have us coming out looking like Jesus. Now, let's move on. Starting in verse 13. He says, But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, you might want to underscore that, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are what? You are blessed, because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. Okay, so in verses 13 through 16. Peter's actually uh, contrasting what it means to suffer for God and suffer because of your own sin. That's the contrast he's trying to draw here. And in verses 13 and 14 that we just read, Peter said we should rejoice if we are suffering for our faith. If your suffering is legitimately because you are living your faith and people are just persecuting you for it, he's saying you should rejoice. Now understand something. There's several Bible authors that have written Things like this, James said, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance. And he's just telling us how great we should be with, with being, you know, struggling. When they say rejoice in your suffering, he's not saying that you are supposed to like suffering. He's not saying that you're supposed to be stoked about being mistreated and persecuted. That's not what he's saying. See, he didn't mean that. He was saying we should rejoice because our suffering identifies us with Christ. When you suffer for what's right, you are never more like Christ than you are suffering for God. That's when you are just like Jesus. Now, I'm not going to lie. I, I, hate, I hate it when pastors get up and say, I love, I rejoice when I'm, I whine. I'm not going to lie. I don't like suffering, but I understand the process. And I do rejoice because I know that in the end, I'm going to be something totally different that he can use in a powerful powerful way but james isn't saying he wanted them to love it he was saying rejoice because you are becoming more and more like christ remember the world murdered jesus because he had unwavering faith in god he was all god and all man and his unwavering faith in god intimidated him and intimidated him so when as believers the world sees us unwavering we remind them of jesus and they're not going to put up with that They're not going to put up with it. When they come at us and try to make laws that hinder us and try to make rules that hinder us and make everything uh, that normal that shouldn't be normal because they know it's offensive to us, when they come at us with guns blazing, they're doing that to see if, like Jesus, we will stand strong or if we'll run or become complacent. That's what they're trying to see in us. That's why that happened. 
They're hoping to intimidate us into giving up. They tried it with Jesus and it failed. And it can fail with us if we just keep our eyes on the prize. I love how Paul described that process in his letter to the church at Philippi. Look at this, Philippians 2, 8 through 11. He said, being found in appearance as a man, he, this is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of what? To the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, I'll bet you, I'll bet you when he was hanging on that cross, they kept going, nobody will, nobody will put up with this. He's going to renounce all this. Just wait. They had a surprise coming. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if they use those methods on Jesus, they're going to use those methods on us. That's what Jesus was trying to say. That's what Peter's trying to say. So he told him, he was encouraging him, all of his readers, listen, just rejoice. The suffering will end. And like Jesus, when the suffering ends, getting through that faithfully will glorify God and people will understand the genuineness and the power of your faith when you make it through it, when you're unwavering like Jesus. When Jesus came out of this whole ordeal and was ascending back to the Father, he was glorified as the Messiah. No one could deny that. Likewise, our suffering's temporary, and someday, when we're through this, the fact that we stood strong will glorify God too. And I think that's what Peter uh, wanted them to know. Now, I think in the end, when you endure suffering, it gives you a greater testimony. I think it gives you more strength and more influence with people. And I think that's one of the reasons when you give up, people think Christianity is nothing. Because we give up too quickly. So this is what Peter was trying to uh, prevent them from having. Now, in contrast, those who suffer because of their sin or because of poor behavior, they shouldn't rejoice. Look at this, verse 15. It says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer underscore this one, or a troublesome meddler. Let's just say that again. Or a troublesome meddler. We're going to spend some time on that. Chris likes that. Okay? Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not being, uh, uh, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glory, uh, glorify God in, the, in his name. Now, I love this. To relate to this, it would be like He's saying, if you are suffering because of your faith, then you are to rejoice. But if you're suffering because of something you did you shouldn't have, there's no rejoicing in that. There's nothing to rejoice about in that. And here's what it would be like. Um, If you get arrested and persecuted because you bombed an abortion clinic, you're not being persecuted for your faith. You're being persecuted for your stupidity. That's what you're being persecuted for. Right now, if you're that self-righteous, you know, judgmental Christian who's always condescending to people and looking down your nose at people and people persecute you for it, you're not being persecuted for your faith. You're being persecuted for your arrogance. Right. Those are the things that you should not rejoice in, because basically what God's saying there is you deserve it. You deserve that. Now, listen to what the Apostle Paul said about that in his uh, letter to the Romans. He says in verse 17, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, be at what? Be at peace with all men. I I love that. I wish people would get that tattooed on them. Be at peace with all men. Verse 19. Never take what? Your own revenge. We don't do that, do we? Never take your own revenge. Uh, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You ever notice when you try to get revenge, you end up getting in more trouble? 
it causes a bigger mess. This is what he's saying. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, here's the tough part. You ready for this? But if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. How many of you, when you're mad at somebody, says, come on over to supper, fellas? Right? Listen to this. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, what? Give him a drink and it can't be poisoned. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, God never said that we could reach out to people that we disagree with or people that are against us. He never said we could reach out to them through violence or revenge. Just love. The only weapon we have is the love of God. None of the rest of that stuff is supposed to be used as a weapon. And God told us not to seek revenge, either for ourselves or for somebody else. Uh, and even Paul, I love what he said at the end. He said, in, in being kind to your enemies, you're heaping burning coals upon their head. Now, how many people hear that and think, wow, that doesn't sound too nice? How many people think that? Heaping burning coals upon their head. It actually was an act of kindness and love. Back then, they would take coals from the, th- from the fire in the community, and they would put them in a pan and carry them on their head and walk to their home and use those coals to cook and start fires in their home. But along the way, those coals would start to go down, and they would start to get colder. And if, if they weren't careful, by the time they got back, they just had a pan full of ashes because it all went out. So the neighborly thing to do is when you saw somebody going by with a pan of, coal, of coals on their head was to take some of your hot coals from your house and put it in theirs so that their coals would remain hot till they got home. So this is even Paul saying that we should be loving and not vengeful and not angry because if you get in trouble for that, you're on your own. Now, notice Peter even included something that I think is awesome. He said you shouldn't suffer as a troublesome meddler. Okay, in the Greek, you'll, this, you don't have to remember this, but in the Greek, it's the word allotriopiscopos, and it means a busybody. That's what, I don't know why they didn't just write that. It means a busybody, right? That means getting involved with things that are none of your business. I got to know, how many people in here know a busybody? Raise your hand. The rest of you don't get out much. Okay. A busybody is someone that gets involved in things that is none of their business. And this includes, you ready for this? Stupid social media arguments. Sometimes, this is terrible as a pastor, but sometimes I will scroll through social media just to laugh at the dumb arguments. And they're going back and forth. And I've even even seen people threaten to beat each other up over a social media argument. And I'm thinking to myself, what do you do for a living? That you can stay home and fight on social media for days. I don't, I don't understand, but that is being a meddlesome, uh, ba- being a busybody. That's what it is, right? So you may wonder why, why did he include that? Why did he talk about busybodies? Why not just look over them, right? Why did he include that on something so important? The answer is simple. Busybodies cause more problems than just about anybody. Just about anybody. Listen, I'll be honest with you. Give me the, give me the, the, the choice between having uh, addicts, and, and people who are fresh out of jail and people who have had trouble with, uh, with the law, I would rather have them fill my church. Because listen, you know, all of us have probably been one of those. <laughs> but I would rather have them fill my church and have gossips and meddlers. I'd ten times rather have them because they cause so much problem. Right? They're always pot stirring. You know what that means? They're always trying to keep trouble stirred up. Right? Uh, they're always gossiping. They're always misquoting or exaggerating the truth so they can get a rise out of somebody. And what, does we, what do we do about it? We downplay it. It's no big deal. Everybody gossips. The enemy loves that. Everybody gossips. No big deal. The truth is, it's a huge deal. 
It's a huge deal. They cause so much problem in our lives and in the lives of our churches and in the Christian walk in general. See, most of you have probably either suffered as a busybody or know someone that has. And let me, I'd say you've suffered as a busybody. We've all been one at one time or another. But you, have you ever been drawn into a big dramatic situation and halfway through it, you're like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? At the end of the day, I don't even care. Why am I in this? You know, someone sucks you in and then you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to stand up for my friend. And you, what you don't realize is your friend is lying. You're getting sucked into something. And it just, your life is on hold and it just feels like such a huge waste of time. Peter didn't want that in the churches. He was saying, listen, if you suffer as a busybody, you got it coming. Don't rejoice in that. You should suffer as someone who is displaying the love of Christ. That's what he was trying to say. Now let's look at verses uh, 17 through 19. Here, Peter kind of shifts his focus because he's actually going to talk to believers and unbelievers, which is kind of rare in this book. Verse 17, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What do you think that means, do not obey the gospel? Believe. He's talking about people who have not believed. Okay, verse 18. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Verse 19. Therefore... Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So what did he mean by, for it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God? This statement, people get so confused about this, this whole, the, both those verses, because one word confuses them. Saved, in verse 18, confuses them. Let's look back at that in verse 18. He says, and if it, if it is with great difficulty that the righteous is saved. That confuses a lot of people. And the word saved in verse 18 is the Greek word sozo. And it means delivered. It's not even a spiritual word. It just means delivered. The word delivered is what it means. Okay? So remember the context of the chapter and the context of the book, actually. How, how to persevere under great persecution and come out glorifying God, right? That's, that's the context. So what Peter was saying is if God holds his own people accountable and disciplines them, imagine how judgment's going to look for someone who refused to believe in him. That's what he's saying. So what did he mean by it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved? He was talking about God commanding his people to be faithful if they wanted to be delivered. He was teaching them how to be delivered. And he said, if you, if you can't live righteously in your persecution, you will stay in your persecution. But if you trust God through it, he will deliver you from it. That's what Peter was trying to tell him. There's rules to getting out of persecution. If you want God to deliver you, then you have to follow those rules. It's really, really important. And then he's saying, listen, if I'm going to hold my people accountable to the rules, if you're an unbeliever, you're going to follow the rules about coming to Christ. It's not going to be through anything other than Jesus. Your denomination is not going to save you. Being religious is not going to save you. Doing good works is not going to save you. I have a plan. The plan is my son. Believe in my son. That will save you. If you don't follow those steps, there is no redemption for you. That's what he was trying to say there. I know that's pretty harsh, but that's what he was trying to say there. And it's really, really in, uh, important that we get that. And you know, one of the things I think that makes it so tough right now is our culture kind of embraces and almost encourages rebellion and self-centeredness. You notice that? I've noticed it's harder for kids to trust God than it used to be when you start talking to them. And the reason is, is they've been encouraged that their way is the right way since the time of being children, little children. Right now, I know this is going to make some people mad. And if it does, 
Scotty Ritchie at GCCKindleville.com. <laughs> but in modern parenting, we do some things, I think, that encourages us not being able to submit to, other, to, to God or anyone else. If you're that parent who will debate with your kids about the rules instead of just establishing and enforcing them, you are setting them up for failure even with God. Have you ever been in the store and watched a parent arguing with a three-year-old? You ever seen that? How many, um, this is terrible, how many people are going, swat his butt and put him in the cart, Lord? Okay. <laughs> I know everybody's going, I'm turning you in, you said swat his butt. <laughs> My number's online. But I want so bad to walk up to him and go, you do know that you're arguing with someone that doesn't know the alphabet, right? <laughs> right? I just, they can't tie their shoe. And you're having a serious debate with them. You don't see a problem with that? You know what I mean? I've seen this time and time and time again. They let their children debate like they're in court about whether they're going to keep their own rules with that child or not. And what's even more crazy is a lot of times the kid wins. The kid wins. That's it. You are coming home at 8 o'clock. I want to come home at 10. You're coming home at 9 o'clock. I want to come home at 10. Okay, you're coming home at 10, but don't be late. You see what I'm saying? And we think that we're being their friend and we think that we're helping them, but you're setting them up for failure because teachers in school will keep their rules and your kid will get in trouble and come home and blame everybody else. Bosses in jobs will keep their rules. They won't debate with you. They'll fire you, right? The police are going to keep their rules. You can't get pulled over and say, you know, I think you should change the speed limit to 80. Good idea, Chris. You may go. That doesn't work that way. The police are going to keep their rules. So if you don't teach them how to follow established rules, they won't know how to, follow, uh, how to follow established rules. And when they read in the scriptures that God says, believe in Jesus, they'll start saying things like, I think you just have to believe in a higher power. Why? Because they've been taught that if they debate, they get things their way. Listen, God isn't making his rules up for argument or discussion. They are what they are. You can believe them and be rewarded or not and suffer the consequences. I think it's really important because it's, it's hard for me, and I'll get out of the way here pretty quickly, but it's hard for me right now when I see that anything goes, everything's negotiable. Do you notice that's where we're at right now? Eventually, we are going to be a country of no absolutes and no common sense. That's what we're going to be if we're not there already. And you know what? That's fine because this isn't where I'm going to spend eternity. That's, cool. that's okay. But I want children to have the ability to submit to something because they will need to submit to God. He's not going to change the rules. Right? He's not going to change the rules. They're going to need him to face this world and how bad it's getting someday. And they have to learn that from you, parents. They have to learn that from you. Peter was acting like the parent here. And he was saying, yes, you'll suffer, but submit to God and he'll get you through it. Right? Don't be shocked. Try to draw blessing from it because God will bless you if you hold to it. But it's going to have to come through submitting to him. That's what he was trying to teach him. Because I'm sure these people were ready to give up. They were getting sick of being persecuted. But he was giving them this quick way out. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. And I don't ask people to come up front. I don't do all that stuff. I just want to pray for you because, you know, listen, I've been there. And I'm not that person that thinks I've got it all together and you don't. I need prayer all the time. 
If you're not sure where you stand with Christ or you just need prayer, make eye contact and put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to chase you down. I'm not going to email you. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm just going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. If you're watching online, listening online, God knows your heart. But I will pray for you. And I want you to know, I don't just say that, speaking Christianese. I actually go home and pray for those faces because I know. I know what it feels like. And believers, I always pray for us because one of the things that keeps me up at night, I have a grandbaby who's actually going to be dedicated today. And I think of the world we live in, and I just want there to be more believers leaving examples for children like that on how to love God, stay focused on what's right, and be the kind of person that draws people to the kingdom. And I'm telling you, it starts with us. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy. And I'm amazed that you can love me. No one else knows where I've been and what I've done, but you do. You know how imperfect I am. You know all the mistakes I make. You know the sins I commit every day. You know that I could never be righteous and I could never earn heaven on my own. So you sent your son to die on my behalf. You didn't ask me to become good enough. You didn't ask me to have something to trade. You said, believe in my son and what he's done to pay for your sin debt and I will give you eternal life. You don't have to deserve it. You just have to believe it. And because of that, you gave even someone like me the opportunity to have eternal life. And I'm so thankful. If there's someone who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, whatever misconception, move it out of their mind and let them realize you sent your son because you wanted it to be as easy as believing what he did was enough. And if they do, you'll give them eternal life. And if anyone makes that decision today, I just pray they contact us. We'd like to walk with them in their journey. But for those of us who are believers, God, it's easy to complain about the world. It's easy to get mad about the world. What's hard is learning to submit and trust you so that you can use us to change the world. God, let us have a heart that loves the world enough to try to change it. Give us a passion for your word and a passion to enlarge the borders of the kingdom through service. God, just let us be the kind of people that draw people to you. We just pray that as we leave here, you would keep us safe and let us live what we profess. And we pray if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.